Office Memorandum. David Munchak to John Diner. Reconsidimation. Los Angeles. 2022. Dear Diner, I suppose you'll call this a confession when you hear it. Well, I don't like the word confession. I just want to set you right about something you couldn't see because it was smack up against your nose. You think you're such a hot potato as a podcast producer. Such a werewolf on an old movie. Maybe you are. But let's take a look at that Hutchins killing. Reconsidimation and double indemnity. You were pretty good on that for a while, Diner. You said it was a podcast about movies. Check. You said we put old movies under the microscope. Check. You said there'd be a parking spot. Check. You thought you had a cold, didn't you? You thought you had it all wrapped up in tissue paper with pink ribbons around it. And it was perfect. Except that it wasn't. Because you made one mistake. Just one little mistake. When it came to picking the killer, you picked the wrong guy. You want to know who killed Hutchins? Hold tight to that cheap cigar of yours, Diner. I killed Hutchins. Me. David Munchak. Podcast executive. Cat fanatic. No visible scars. Till a week ago, that is. Yes, I killed him. I killed him for a podcast. And for a parking spot. I didn't get the podcast, and I didn't get the parking spot. Pretty, isn't it? It all started back in 2018. A bright-eyed rookie fresh out of Podcast University in Los Angeles. Adventures being told. October is in the history books, and this month we're going to take a, a shot in the dark, uh, per se, with Noirvember here at Reconcinimation. I'm John Diner. I'm David Munchak. I'm Brent Hutchins. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, or you could even say the 40s, really, uh, which is where we're going to today. Um, we're, we're taking a look at Double Indemnity uh, with our, our look back at film noir this month, but Let's just recap a little bit. Shocktober 2022 is wrapped up. Uh, we had a great time talking about Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors with our, our good friend E.K. Wimmer. Uh, we talked about Christine with our, our friend J. Blake Fischera. And we talked about Halloween, not only Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, but also Halloween Ends and all the controversy that comes with both of those movies really uh it was it was uh i had a, a hell of a time uh talking about those did you guys have a have a great shocktober this year absolutely it was a it was a nice october for sure shocktober nice shocktober <laughs> yes uh same D david's favorite time Ditto. of the year yep every every year he loves it but but now we're moving past and we're moving to noirvember uh and we're taking a look a little bit outside our wheelhouse. We're going to dial the Wayback Machine all the way to 1944. Uh, we are going to take a step back. Okay, so film noir. Are, uh, are you guys in general, where, where do you stand with film noir? Is that is that a genre you're fans of, familiar with? It's not one that um, we see a lot of in present day, but maybe just kind of echoes of it. Uh, David, where, where do you stand on film noir in general? I think it's, uh, I, I like the idea of it and I like uh, the execution of it and almost anything that I've seen. I haven't seen a ton of 
of especially back when it was established you know as a standard with essentially this movie um a lot of that era but uh you know i guess i've seen more neo-noir ish stuff but i just like it because it's it's like it's uh you know it's so not real in a sense but it is it is it's real but it's it's everything's heightened and um it's uh so you're coming at everything a little bit different it's a it's a, such a stylized thing that yeah I'm a, I'm a i'm a fan of of this in general but the thing is like i can't really describe it i, I mean i'm not knowledgeable enough i mean it's obviously there is a way to define it but like so i don't know how to describe it but i know it when i see it much like you know pornography yeah <laughs> so it's just like did you uh, just direct direct correlation <laughs> You just compared pornography and film noir. I love it. Well, yeah, yeah. I was quoting that judge who had said that. He's like, I don't know. I can't describe pornography, but I can, I know it when I see it. <laughs> so which is an apt way to really like anything like that. So, yeah, they're they're not the same thing, but it's almost. Or are they? They're nothing alike. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bren, how about you? Are you a, a noir fan? Uh, you know, I classic noir movies like true classic noir movies from the 40s and 50s like i i can't say that i've gone out of my way to like seek out like the best of the noir and and <clears throat> try to see all those movies uh i've seen a handful of them the ones that i've seen i i enjoy i like the style of it you know but i think the thing is that's kind of interesting about noir it's a little controversial it's a little undefined like there's definitely the classic time of the 40s and 50s but I think if you were to talk to people about noir and talk to critics about noir, like, you know, they would all have a differing opinion on what movies like could be noir. I certainly am a fan of tech noir stuff. So, you know, like Terminator and tech noir is a great club. It is in. Yeah. It's a tech noir is a great club in Terminator one. Bad things happen though. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I like those kind of movies. I like the, um, you know, kind of the 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 style of noir and and when it's integrated into more current movies and things like that. But I again don't go back and and seek out necessarily the classic noirs, but the ones that I have seen and do do run into, like I I do like like some of my favorite directors are kind of in that uh, ballpark or have done movies like that. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I. Um... I wouldn't say also that like I really love film noir, but I'm also now I haven't seen there's so much I haven't seen. So it's always been a genre that I've wanted to just really dive into and and spend some time with and just kind of go from top to bottom and maybe not all the way to the bottom, but (laughs) hit the top, you know, 20 and try to uh, work my way through those. But I feel like I've seen enough to know that, uh, you know, enough to know about it. But um yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a genre that that basically lived between 1944 and 1954. Um, arguably, there's there's noir films that came in before that and some after that, but those are sort of the prime years, um, and, and it's really just marked by you know a really uh, a mood of like cynicism and pessimism. Uh, the cinematography is very uh, based in German expressionism and dealing a lot with light and, you know, light and dark shadows and, and how those are used as a storytelling element more than, you know, your average movie. Like it's very yeah. extreme. 
I love I love the moody lighting of of noir. You know, like that classic like smoke filtering up through the window shades as you see the the yeah. the shadow of the of the shade across whatever you know and yeah. uh yeah that kind of stuff is pretty great it sets a nice mood yeah it, and there's there's a lot of like i don't want to say tropes but there's certain mechanisms that get used like the, like the narration also that that quite often accompanies a film noir that someone is telling the story from either the end or the middle and and that's something that kind of has come back now that storytelling device but um yeah there's a lot of stylistic you know heavy stylistic choices that set it apart from the the type of films that were being made especially in that era like you can put on a film noir movie and you'll recognize it immediately like it's a completely different style visually so um but I don't know, are, are people, modern audiences, how familiar do you think they are with film, with classic film noir now? I don't know. I, I mean, I would think that it is kind of out of the, um, the public kind of eye for the most part. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, again, I think, I think that people see its influences in movies today all the time uh but to go back to the classics like you say the classic noir like i mean i just don't see a lot of people these days um going back and and like seeking out movies from the 40s and 50s you know like i just yeah. think that the yeah that the filmmaking as an art form has kind of progressed to a certain point where uh you know, like I think, I'll, I think a lot of younger audiences now would find it kind of slow and mm -hmm. and. Um, but I mean, still, they're it's they're great films. I mean, they're fantastic. I think that, um, I think that that doesn't do it justice. You know, but I I don't know that a lot of people are like it's on the the forefront of people's mind. Yeah, I I think I think you you really nailed it there. But there are the interesting thing, especially in watching Double Indemnity back, that uh, there are there are film noir films that aren't slow paced that do move quickly and that, you know, just as well as movies do now, but you, you don't assume that, you know, you're used to seeing those older films have that slower pace, even if the running time isn't longer, just paced right. out differently. But yeah, I mean, other than like here in LA, I mean, you only see film noir specialty screenings. It's not, you know, not something that is, uh, out there it's also 80 years old uh i don't well, right I, like i don't know a lot of i mean turner movie classics isn't even playing noir that often anymore you know what i mean like <laughs> like, like their classics are the 70s now so like you got to get tmc noir yeah. to see the <laughs> to see the the noir movies like yeah so uh, i mean I, I i work with a lot of you know, younger uh people in the film industry and and a lot of them maybe have seen one yeah, or I was gonna two. Say, yeah, there's probably a handful, right? Like, uh, you know, that may have seen Maltese Falcon or, yeah. you know, like, I don't know if you consider like Casablanca, you know, or, or it's noir-ish, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, but yeah, it, maybe someone caught a Hitchcock movie that's considered noir at one yeah. at some point, you know, but. Yeah, it's the, like if you're not getting shown it in film school, there's exactly. not a lot of people seeking it out. But 
it's funny to think like when we were growing up in the 80s we were 40 years removed from film noir like don't say it. and right. so we're now if we went 40 years back we'd be in the in the 80s so it's like do kids today want to watch a lot of 80s films probably like just and i mean the 80s is a just a time frame not a genre obviously in a sense but it's like it's sort of like so what do you want to go back 80 years it is kind of a and what are movies in the 2060s going to be like oh my gosh <laughs> so right that's 40 years from now i mean yeah yeah i don't know so time definitely has a you know now that there's how many how many how many things do you have access to right now to watch like literally yeah 500,000 things like i mean infinite infinite things to watch um so it so you know these things that like establish you know an entire genre and are so old like you know they have it's the influence as you said it's like felt throughout the throughout the ages and people just watch you know what's what's available to them it's probably it's probably hard it's harder to know these exist because it's you know i don't know so old You have to seek them out. I mean, you have yeah. to be, you have to know what you're looking for and um, be, or specifically be interested in it. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's, I think it's because of that. The film noir almost, you know, like, I think there's a lot of people who wouldn't even consider film noir a genre, even like it would, they would consider it a style mm. of, of filmmaking, but not a genre. Right. Because, because it, it is not, you know, like it's not something that is, um, specific to like uh the theme of a movie but it's like the style of yeah and thing and thing and things of that nature but everything bleeds right you can sort of you can do a western not necessarily in a western setting which i guess it's a genre and a style right so that's what like so yeah this is kind of the same but yeah i think you you're more so getting a style out of these days for sure Yeah, yeah for sure yeah so i mean We'll have to, we'll have to, we'll have to examine what's the good noir out these days. Uh, once, uh, but you know, we got to stay in the forties. Like, this is as far back as we've gone, right? This is our uh, oldest. This episode. is the oldest. Yeah, Excellent. we've really jumped into the crypt. Yeah, we. Uh, what's the uh, sixty-two? I think was the no, maybe sixty-one with the hustler was probably our uh, uh, oldest film we covered previously. Yeah. What was Once Upon a Time in the West? Sixty-eight. Sixty-eight. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So. We did 62 with Dr. No, we did 61 with The Hustler, now just even way further back, 1944. We're jumping. Um, I can't wait until we do The Great Train Robbery. (laughs) (laughs) That won't be a long episode, though. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, and noir has evolved over the years. You know, we we mentioned neo-noir and that coming, kind of coming back in the 70s and 80s, and then it just, yeah, becoming more of a um, style that was used, you know, seven is another kind of noirish film. And, and we'll get to the one we're going to cover next, next episode uh, a little later, but <clears throat> double indemnity uh, is what we're talking about today specifically. And, and it's a, a Billy Wilder classic. We'll talk about him in a second, but double indemnity is considered, I mean, some say it was the first film noir. I don't think it actually was the, fr- I mean, it's hard to say what the first one was. It's, uh, what do you, what do you consider? I mean, there, there's movies in the thirties that have noir, um, you know, certain noir uh, elements in it, but uh, in general, double indemnity is considered the, the peak of, of noir and, and one of, if not the best example of it. So um 
but there's tons. There's The Big Sleep, there's Maltese Falcon, Sunset Boulevard, Night in the City, Raw Deal, Out of the Past. I mean, it goes on and on. There's there's plenty to choose from that is all really good. So anyone listening who hasn't who hasn't uh, sampled film noir, any of those, I mean, I would just look it up. Like there is, there is a, a, a long list of really excellent films that um, feel very different than your typical 1940s or 1950s film. So uh, highly, highly recommend it as a whole, but, uh, but, but David, what's happening? What is happening in double indemnity? Uh, uh, double indemnity. It's, you know, it's, it's about a Los Angeles based insurance salesman who is, uh, who gets caught up with a sexy, alluring, uh, it sounds like the David Munchak story. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) definitely woman, uh, this, she, she sort of seduces him into a, uh, a plot to commit insurance fraud and murder her husband and uh tr- you know try to get away with murder and it is a battle for him to try to outwit his his colleague who investigates insurance claims and um uh yeah and that you know and it, double indemnity is the the special insurance policy that it's when, the claw. It's the clause in the insurance policy correct, that pays yeah. twice the, twice the the premium, uh, or pay for certain for certain for certain, certain types of, of deaths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and yeah. In this particular case, a death on the train. Yes, <laughs> not one you see very often, but no. Um. All right. So when was the when did this hit your radar, or when was the first time you saw it, uh, Brent? What about you? You know, I per, it would have been film school that that this first uh, that I was first made aware of this. We may have even seen clips of it in in uh, one of our film classes, but I don't think I had ever seen it all the way through until uh, literally like watching it for for the podcast. This wow, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was surprised as well. I mean, I definitely heard of the movie. I, you know, it's when speaking of film noir this is one of the the five that get thrown out as as you know like kind of off the cuff uh off the top of the head mm-hmm. uh in conversations but yeah i had never i had never seen it all the way through interesting i, I yeah i i know we saw clips in class but i don't yeah. think we ever actually i don't think the whole film was was played for us you, nope. you're right about that uh interesting david what about you is this a first time watch no, I saw it back in uh, in in a in a film film as art class uh, for uh, which is you know one a sta- you know a uh, what do you call it a mandatory you needed a communications credit for your major so uh, a film as art was one and so we uh, this this was studied among other other films and uh, uh, so that was probably nineteen ninety nine ish I think so. Shocking yeah. news. This is shocking news that it's a Brent first time watch and not yeah. a David. That's right. Yeah. yeah. How about yeah. that? <laughs> How about that? The um, student has become the teacher. <laughs> I just not, did a th- I just did a thing that you didn't do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> You've done more things that I haven't done. You've done more things that I haven't done. See, it works so, both ways. You guys c- should write a co-autobiography. 
and then what have every, we done? Everything yeah. will be covered. <laughs> yeah, called what have we done? As long as we read it like a Dr. Seuss book, I'm in. Yeah, there you go. it'll be. Yeah, it's short. Um, I remember exactly when I saw this. Uh, it was October 1998. Yes, back <laughs> at the College of Santa Fe, our film school, our beloved alma mater, R.I.P. Yep. R.I.P. Uh, uh, I was super sick. I got like maybe one of the worst flus that I that I have ever gotten. Whoa. And I was out of class for like almost, a, I think, a solid week, like a Monday to Friday. And Were we uh, roommates at this time? No, we were not. This was our sophomore year. So oh, you, okay. you had moved out. I had the room to myself um, Very good. at that point. But uh, I was like literally in bed for days and just could not get out. And uh, our... RA was was a guy named Chip and Chip uh, just came to my room with a box of movies of VHS tapes and just like slid the box in at me and it was filled with Billy Wilder movies and just random other movies that was uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High was in there that was the first time I saw that um, it was all it was all movies I hadn't seen before just luckily so so I went through a lot of Billy Wilder, uh, you know, classics in that. And this was one of them. And uh, it blew me away. Like I, I, I fell in love with the, with almost every one of the Wilder movies I saw, which was like this Sunset Boulevard, uh, Stalag 17. Um, what else? Oh, The Apartment and Some Like It Hot. All those were in there. So it was, it was great. And, and it could do nothing but focus. This is pre-cell phones so it's like it wasn't distracted like it's so so easily done today but uh i became a big big billy wilder fan and and again another another film director who is not you know maybe people have seen some like it hot or the apartment maybe sunset boulevard but uh another director is kind of as time goes on is getting more and more forgotten and is somebody who should be looked back at him. He's got a, a ton of great films that we'll get into. But um, what have you guys seen? Where, where are you on Billy Wilder as, as a director? Have you seen some of those movies or some of the big ones or uh, some of the lesser known ones? It's just this in the apartment for me. So, yeah, I've, I've seen more of his movies. I mean, I think Billy Wilder is one of the greatest directors of this time. Like, honestly, I think he's like on, mm -hmm. on, on that list. I mean, my, my favorite is Hitchcock from this kind of era, but, but uh, I mean, Billy Wilder's stuff, like if you go through his credits and look at the things that he's done, like you're going to recognize almost a hundred percent of the movies that he, that he's done. And if you've done any kind of studying of film, like you've definitely heard of all of them. Um, I mean, he's great. The apartment is probably one of my favorite movies. It's, it's definitely my favorite one that he's done also uh, introduced to me by Chip. Yep. Uh, so he was, I mean, you know, Chip he was just be, going room to room. And oh, just... he'd be the first one to tell you that Billy Wilder was his favorite director. I mean, he <laughs> had everything. He had that chest of VHSs. Yeah. And like, I remember the apartment sitting on top and I was like, oh, can I borrow that? He's like, yes. You yeah. know, like, I mean, it was, he's definitely the guy that introduced Wilder to, like, I had seen Wilder movies before, Billy Wilder movies before, but I, it was before I, but I didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, like he was the one that brought Billy Wilder to my, like, un, my consciousness. You know, like, yeah. like I wasn't just watching a movie that was done by somebody. I was watching a Billy Wilder movie, and right. so 
um, you know, I mean, he's, he's fantastic. Yeah. And, and there's really like, kind of like the Coen brothers, there, there's two different kinds of Wilder. There's the d dark kind of film noir Wilder with more heavy kind of plot lines and, and darker stories. And then there's some like it hot and the, the lighter stuff that he was doing towards the, in the sixties and towards the yeah. end of his career. And I think he retired in, I want to say it was 1981, I think, when he stopped uh, really directing. And then um, and he passed away in 2002, I think. But um, that's, yeah, that's right. Multiple Oscar, you know, he was nominated many times, multiple Oscar wins over the years for him. Um, yeah, big fan. And just I, I think he excelled in both, you know, comedies and heavy dramas. And he used uh, he used a couple of actors multiple times, um, William Holden and and Jack Lemmon specifically, and yeah. both were great leads for him and in, in, in multiple films like Stalag 17, Sunset Boulevard, and Jack Lemmon's in both The Apartment and Some Like It Hot, as well as a few other films. Uh, so highly recommend, probably, I, I would say probably for me personally, it's tough to say what's my favorite out of the wilder films that I've seen. There's, there's witness for the prosecutions also great. And, um, I, 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 it's really hard to say, like my top four would be the apartment, double indemnity, sunset Boulevard, maybe Stalag 17, uh, would, would be number four, but yeah, maybe, I really, Oh, maybe, go ahead. I, I might just say this one's my favorite. I, re I really love double indemnity. Yeah, this one's good. I really like Spirit of St. Louis too, but I'm a big like uh, James Stewart's fan. James Stewart fan, so mm -hmm. you know. <clears throat> um, well, the let's talk about how this this got made. Uh, originally, this was a this was a novel written in 1936 by James M. Kane, uh, and it was based on a true 1927 murder uh, i mean it's very very close to what we actually saw of uh, albert snyder by his wife ruth snyder and her boyfriend exactly for this reason doing it for the insurance money and um the the novel appeared as an eight-part story uh, or ser serial in liberty magazine which by the way remember when there were magazines remember what those were <laughs> yes does anyone get magazines anymore? Anyone collect those? Man, if you look, dude, magazines are like $18 now. It's really. crazy. Like if you were to go to the grocery store or a bookstore, I think there's only those are the only two places you can find magazines. But yeah. if you go and look at them on the shelves, because I've looked, I'm like, oh, Time Magazine has an interesting cover. Let me look through it. And I'll be like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll get this. And then I look at it and it's like $15.99, like not Canadian, like US. Really? And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not buying this for Sixteen dollars for Time Magazine? Yeah, yeah. The Wizard? I'm not. I'm not, all like, I'm not messing. Like, look. I mean, it may have been a quarterly. I don't know, but like, check it out. Like, wow. Just look when next time you go. Yeah, I'm gonna pay because they're they're thing. all they're all color now, and they're all um like a thicker paper. It's more of like a special thing, whereas magazines were everywhere when we were growing up. Just. There were magazines for everything and yeah, the print would get on your fingers, yeah. they just run all over you. Is like magazines? Like, yeah. Yeah, man. What do you mean the Back print the would get on your finger? 
Oh yeah, like, you've never you've never like thumbed through a magazine like you've bought your latest issue of Fangoria magazine. This would be for me specifically. Oh god, and, and you're like or 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 Entertainment Weekly or whatever have you, Sports Illustrated even. David's got uh, Starlog magazine you, subscription you, still. If you hold on to the magazine for too long and then take your hands off, like literally. Ink- oh, I guess. I, yeah. All right. All right. All right. I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking like it's in like newsprint or like it doesn't require. No, it's not. It, uh, it's not like that, but it's like it, it will run like it, it transfers. Yeah. If you I, I, I would like read magazines out on my deck and if it was hot. Yeah. You, yeah, know, you it's like, like forget about it. Yeah. Well, that's what's like, it like? What's it like from New York there? <laughs> I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> but you did it. <laughs> I did it. You're right. Yeah, you totally did it. <laughs> forget uh, about it. <laughs> I, I wasn't that extreme with it, but maybe not. But you're but gonna let's it play it back. That's probably the first time I, I ever did that. But I'm gonna count it now. <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, so uh, based off the success of uh, the Postman Always Rings Twice uh, the previous year in 1934. Uh, James Kane writes writes the script. He writes the screenplay for Double Indemnity and basing it off that actual murder and starts shopping it around Hollywood. I, you know, I just. So I've been trying to catch up on some film noir lately. I watched Gilda. I watched Key Largo. I watched Postman Always Rings Twice, both versions, uh, of which I will say the the older film, I think, is much uh, more engaging than the Jack Nicholson one from the, I think, 1980 or 81. But uh, I know it's shocking that I would say that, but uh, I think it's true. So it happens. Um, so yeah, James Kane was uh, had a little bit of, of status there as a writer. So he's shopping around Double Indemnity. Every studio wanted to do it. They were all they were bidding about twenty five thousand each for it. But the the uh, Hayes uh, Hayes Code or Hayes Commission condemned the film so or the script. So everyone for backed what, off. For what reason? Like, does it? Did you did you find out why? So have you heard why? I don't know. I you know I don't know what is in this version, but they you know at the time and and they do it kind of continuously through the production of this uh, object to. I mean, it was a moral code. The Hayes Hayes Commission was like upholding a moral, an ethical code that you know characters uh, had to you know if the like villain villainous characters had to have had to get their comeuppance. They couldn't know it. They couldn't get away with anything. They had to pay pay the price for what the, whatever they were doing. You couldn't show, you know, there was there was hard lines about sex and and allusions to sex. There was a, a whole bunch of lines drawn in the sand that you could not cross, or your movie was not. They they, they would just shut down movies from before they even started. So this was one of those, and mm-hmm. and. The studios backed off and and it was kind of a no no touch uh situation for it until 1943 it it the hayes commission had i think they had lost a little bit of power by that point and uh it it resurfaced and it starts getting shopped around again and paramount goes after it this time for only fifteen thousand. Um, specifically for uh, as a way for billy wilder to uh um kind of launch his career further along. I think he had done two previous films in America. He was, he'd been born in Poland and, and had, uh, had 
moved to Germany and then escaped and come to uh, come to he had come to America in I believe the twenties and or not sorry not the twenties in the late thirties and uh, started directing here. So they're trying to get this for him. Um, the Hayes Commission again tries to go after it, but by this point, Paramount and Billy Wilder were just like, "Screw it, we're doing it. Like we're just gonna we're just gonna make this movie." So you can give notes, and we'll we might address them, but we're just gonna do it. And I think that's what started to happen at this point is people just stopped listening, and and the studios kind of started to hold their ground. Um, so Billy Wilder hires uh, Raymond Chandler, who had written The Big Sleep and was a a big uh, you know, detective uh, writer and a, 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 I don't want to say a film noir writer, but a lot of detective stories and, and similar kind of uh, plots uh, of the day. And, and uh, they start working together for about four months and they did not get along. I mean, Raymond Chandler is like an, a legendary writer and they just did not get along. But it was one of those that the more they didn't get along, the better the script was getting. <laughs> like, like they were using that. It's just like ways to, I, I, you know, it was one of those like creatively it was working. Personally, it wasn't, but it happens. This is like us. You know, we don't, outside of this recording, the three of us refuse to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. We go through emissaries and. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> That strengthens their show. Yeah. Or, yeah. or proxies. We have proxies mm -hmm. that are, are outside meetings. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and Raymond Chandler was, was struggling with alcoholism at this point. And so at periods of time, Billy would get more involved and take over. But a lot of the dialogue came directly from Chandler. So that was... Uh, probably one of his biggest contributions which which is such a key part of of these kinds of films um after this uh the next movie billy wilder would make is, is a movie called the lost weekend which he won i think best picture and best director for but it's about an alcoholic writer who's struggling with writer's block and and he made that as a way to explain to raymond chandler about himself this is you, buddy. Yeah, here you go. We're not friends, but this is what this is your life here, dude. Uh, so yeah, so that's the um, you know then the it uh, moves into production and and we'll get to the cast in a minute, but um, let's just talk about some of the the plot points and the techniques that are that are going on in the film. Uh, how are you guys with? Does, so the, the the framework of the narration of Walter Neff, you know, telling his story, basically like narrating the story into this dicta, dic, dictaphone, is that what it's called? A dictating machine? Yeah, I think sure. so. Yeah. I don't know. I wasn't born in the 40s, man. I didn't <laughs> live in the 40s. I don't know. I have a uh, cell phone. <laughs> um, that bookends the movie. Uh, how do you guys feel about this? Does that come across as something kind of cheesy now or do you feel like it worked well, it's a good framing device to get us in right I, I i feel like they you probably don't see you didn't see a lot of that i don't know like you know yeah yeah i don't have any point of reference but i thought it was pretty clever for for being able to use him as the voice of the narration you know like getting in and out like that yeah. Yeah, it's probably one of the first times that kind of that 
framing was really used. I think it is a, it is a noir technique that that gets used quite a bit, but this may have been the first or first major movie to use it. Well, is it is it is it in noir with the narration? Is it is the is the narrator telling the story to another person like this is like it's not for the audience necessarily. Like is that targeted at the audience? Or I think sometimes narration... it's str it's straight for the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this actually, you know, comes up with uh, a, a way to to frame it so that it is for the audience, but it's also part of the plot. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, and you don't really know what's going on. I mean, you you see that he's shot. He stumbles into the office, and uh, you know, clearly something something terrible has happened to him. And and now we're going to learn what that is. So then we rewind back to the beginning of the story where we see. Him as the much more lighthearted insurance salesman working for uh, for uh, Keys, who's his boss, played by Edward G. Robinson. Um, it's amazing how quickly, you know, he's a he's a door to door insurance salesman, right? And and when he goes to the Dietrichson house, as soon as he sees Phyllis Dietrichson, played by Barbara Stanwyck like he immediately flips like he just melts and he's such a uh which became a problem with, as far as casting this character that he is so malleable yeah well yeah he's immediately drawn to her but i mean uh you know who who they frame it as though she's irresistible to to anybody i, I suppose yeah I mean, she's your femme um, fatale yeah there you go but uh you know uh but he's not like he doesn't become evil all of a sudden he's... no but he's just like putty in her in her hands like he's trying to kind of play the game with her but really like you, you can see through him that he's gonna like however she ends up playing it he's gonna follow her lead yeah hmm. and the anklet like they, they mention, like he, he mentions the anklet i think three or four times in that opening scene where or that first scene they, they share together and that's like the anklet is like that was racy for the time. Right. She was showing him a little leg. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the anklet is symbolism for his, his lust for her. And it's like, I mean, that, like he, he's pushing it pretty, pretty hard and pretty quickly, you know, <laughs> like right off oh, the yeah, bat. He snaps, he snaps right into it. Yeah. It's like he gets himself real comfortable. They walk into the little living room. He throws his, uh, portfolio on the desk and his hat like he lives in the joint like he's he's uh like i said making himself real comfortable <laughs> yeah <laughs> but my god like great performances from from fred mcmurray and barbara stanwick i mean like to me this is like legendary acting right here and oh yeah you're a smart insurance man aren't you mr neff well i've been at it 11 years doing pretty well mm, it's a living you handle just automobile insurance or all kinds? All kinds. Fire, earthquake, theft, public liability, group insurance, industrial stuff, and so on, right down the line. Accident insurance? Accident insurance? Sure, Mr. Dietrichson. Wish you'd tell me what's engraved on that anklet. Just my name. As, for instance? Phyllis. Phyllis, huh? I think I like that. But you're not sure. Well, I'd have to drive it around the block a couple of times. Uh, you know, Fred McMurray was was at this point just 
a, a kind of a goody two shoes kind of actor. Also, what he did later when he was the father and like father uh, was it uh, my, three my, sons. Three sons. my three sons, my three sons, yeah, yeah, which so is like where I first years. knew him from on Nick at Night. Same, I knew, yeah, I knew him from Nick at Night, showing all these shows from the fifties, and uh, and he, you know, he, and I, I watched a lot of Nick at Night back then. I don't remember any of the My Three Sons anymore, but yeah, uh, he was, uh, you know, because wasn't he the Shaggy Dog too? Well, that's what I was gonna say. Wasn't <laughs> yeah. he like the guy in the Shaggy Dog? Right? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so it's like so like you know a, a light guy. So yeah, when watching in in ninety nine, like uh, watching this film, like, and he's just like he's a totally different man. It's like. Awesome. But I mean, yeah. I, I had no idea how big his career was leading up to this point. I think huge. Like he was humongous. <laughs> he, I mean, yes, even though I, I was saying he's a goody two shoes, but, but he was one of the top leading men. I mean, he was, he was the highest paid actor um, in the country yeah. and the fourth highest paid, uh, you know, male in the country at period across all you know all, all jobs yeah all yeah. industries so wow. uh so he was really top level guy just hadn't done this kind of role before so yeah, yeah see what i remember when i when i was about to play this movie i was like oh fred mcmurray Ugh. yeah <laughs> great so That's cheesy exciting and then he's amazing like he he yeah. hit a, a grand slam with this and and really his contract was pretty much up with Paramount at this point. And they were like, all right, you want to do this movie? Then go for it. You'll see what happens. You know, they were, they were kind of trying to teach him a lesson that like, you, you can't just, you need to, you have your lane and you should stay in it. And then boom, he did this. And this was probably his greatest performance really ever. And uh, took his career completely in a, in a uh, different direction. So um yeah he he sort of showed them after all but uh Barbara Stanwyck too was was the highest paid actress and I think highest paid female in the country at the time so uh, you know two huge stars here and she was really um just top level and and, and really her performance in this to me is the definitive femme fatale mm -hmm. right like you, you can't get much better than what you see, you know, the, the way she plays this character and the passion that she, she uses. And, um, you know, she sucks you in as an audience, as a viewer also, just like he felt, you know, as, as Walter Neff fell for her, you kind of fall for her as well, that you're, you're, you're kind of going along with it too, emotionally, I think, but, um, you know, and they played up her, uh, I think she was wearing a blonde wig on top of the anklet and the jewelry and everything and really kind of like tried to, to really emphasize the, the, the beauty. Um, but, uh, but she was also really nervous taking this role. She was, uh, she also hadn't really played a character like this and was worried that it was going to kind of bring her, her career down a little bit. And, Billy Wilder was, uh, you know, conv convinced her to do it. And I think she was, it, it was like one of the best career choices she ever made. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. 
There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. Eight thirty tomorrow evening, then. That's what I suggested. You'll be here too. I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. Uh, I really enjoyed her in this. I'm a big fan. Yeah, she's so good. I mean, just every scene, just totally captivating, and and uh, yeah, just what a great character and great performance. I think all the performances across the 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 movie were pretty spot on, though. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because because of the cadence and the linguistics of everything from the '40s is still, you know, it's it's dated now. Like it it kind of takes you. It, for me, it took me out a little bit, mm-hmm. right? But 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 the performances and 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 the way that they play off each other and the chemistries and things like that were all really really uh, impressive, you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's a it's a complete it's a complete style that really just existed within this this time period. Yeah. Well, I just I I really I love how, how I just absolutely adore the dialogue. Like I just uh, everything is it's like it's 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 all a little too clever, but it, you know, like they they're all trying to showing off that they're smart because they can just kind of be quippy, and it's. I, I I actually I don't I I don't mean to bring it to this, but like think of like the uh the modern Marvel movies, like especially when they first started out. It's like everyone's a little quippy, quippy, quippy. Like we're really smart because it, it's all the shortcut of like how smart I am because I'm gonna make a little joke that's not really funny and it's not you're not gonna laugh at it, but you know I'm thinking on two layers. And it's like, but like that's the entire entirety of this movie. Like I just I love I love the style of like it's a little too smart. People don't really talk like this. Like, and yeah, it's just like, she's, she asked like, do you, do you have breakfast? And he's like, I'm known to screen squeeze a few can uh, <laughs> grapefruits. Yeah. And it's just a throw. Like, it's not like, but it, you know, there's so much going on there. And yeah. it's just like, there's so many instances of that. And I just like, ah, Jackson, was that his name? Yeah, it was, I suppose it still is like, you know, <laughs> just like shit like that. I just a big fan of like, when people, I like, I guess I think I like when people in movies don't talk like normal people, which I think is most movie dialogue anyway, if you really think about it. Like, you know, yeah. if you, if you True. write a conversation, right. it's like you have to get to the point, right? <laughs> like, but more so, more or less, it, it seems natural. But like this, like this quippy style, I just love that. So, yeah, yeah the, the, the writing here is great. What's fun for me, what I found kind of fun is like, I, I, I could see, you know, like just watching this movie and and the way that it was spoken and written, I see how they get from there to like spoofs today or or like things where it's, you know, like where things are kind of over the top and yeah. and they really kind of milk that kind of hamminess. But this was this was, you know, like and that's what I think like a lot of people, or at least I've seen more recently, like when when you think of noir and you think of like kind of that kind of speaking in dialogue is mostly in spoof and mostly in like kind of homage or, or parodies of it. And to see it done 
and its natural kind of state before it was like overdone uh, was pretty, was pretty yeah. great to see. Yeah. yeah the, like- the, the back and forth, the one-upsmanship that, that, you know, every, it's like, it's almost like tennis, like back and forth. They're just, they're just quipping. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, yeah, be, because it's not like, but it's not even like, hey, look at how clever we really are. It's just like you almost believe that this is, this is just how this is how they all talk because that's yeah. it just drips throughout the entire movie. Everyone talks like this. Yeah, I, I just love it. So and Edward G. Robinson as Keys is so good at it too. I oh, mean, maybe. he's kind of the master of it. Like, the, like he's like you know the, the uh, I don't know. He's just you know they're good, but he's great. Now look out, office. Every month, hundreds of claims come to this desk. Some of them are phonies, and I know which ones. How do I know? Because my little man tells me. What little man? The little man in here. Every time one of these phonies comes along, he ties knots in my stomach. I can't eat. Yours was one of them, Galopus. That's how I knew your claim was crooked. So what did I do? I sent a tow car over to your garage this afternoon. And they jacked up that burned-out truck of yours. And what did they find? They found what was left of a neat pile of shavings. What shavings? The ones you soak with kerosene and drop the match on. Look, mister, I'm just a poor guy. Maybe I made a mistake. Oh, that's one way of putting it. I ain't feeling so good, Mr. Keyes. Yeah, just a minute. Sign this and you'll feel fine. Sign what? It's a waiver on your claim. Right here. And Edward G. Robinson, I mean, was one of the top actors at this of this era. He had started in Little Little Caesar, which was a gangster film in 1931, and that really made him a star. And and it was, I would say, he's probably on the down downswing, you know, at this point. But um, you know, so many great performances. This was one of my favorites of his, though. Yeah, and he's wow. just like he's he for he's like. Keys can foresee everything happening. He's really, he's seeing everything as it plays out. And Walter Neff is just trying to stay like his whole thing is to stay one step at or two steps ahead of Keys, knowing that he probably will not be able to do that. But he thinks he, he's outsmarted him. Well, well, and it's and it's like every step, like he's covering all his bases, and I think like the rising tension of like when they actually execute it, and it's like, uh, and you really you're along for the ride, and it's like you're you're right there with them, because I had such an, a visceral reaction when they did everything they're supposed to at the train, the, put the body, put the stuff, they get in the car, and then the car doesn't start, and I was like. <gasps> Like, and I remember feeling that the first time I saw the movie, but I felt it again. I forgot. I just forgot. And I was just like, and it's just like, oh no, what are they going to do? Like everything was, everything was perfect. What now? And, uh, you know, so you're rooting for them, even though like they're despicable people, you know, like I I just, (laughs) yeah, I mean, they they worked very hard to plan this murder out. And and (laughs) it's like, oh, it's all going to fall apart. Yeah. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, they can't call anybody. They can't push the car. The car's gigantic. They'll never, you know, the, if anyone sees them, like, what, like they're they're stuck. And so that the relief that comes over when the the car starts, it's like, oh, so now, so now, how does it actually fall apart? You know? But yeah. Anyway. I mean, do you do you feel like the murder of Mister Dietrichson was believable? Sometimes these, uh, you know, these in, in these older films. 
it doesn't really hold up. It's like maybe a little too elaborate or, or awkward. Um, how'd you feel about the actual murder of, of Dietrichson? And then, and then the, not only his murder, but also how they played out the, the, the posing of his, of his accidental death. Uh, you know, the murder shown essentially off screen. And right. so you just assume he's, you know, choked out and, uh, or something like, and it, but it's particularly time to a certain, you know, uh, the murder is almost like inconsequential. Like it's, it's the, how to get away. The murder is the, is the main point. So right. they could have poisoned it. They could have done a million things. And it's like, they don't even want to, I'm sure out of decency or whatever, like they didn't, they weren't going to show him actually like dying uh, or whatever. So I don't know. I, I, I bought the murder. Like, yeah, because again, it's almost like it's almost the, the not as important as the rest of the movie, right? Yeah, I mean yeah. they 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 break he they break his neck really, or Walter breaks his neck, right? Right. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, and then the the storyline of it is that he he's on a train and and falls off the back of the train, right? And breaks, and his, neck. breaks his neck on the fall. That's right. That's right. because that's such an odd death that that Accident would apply. Exactly. Yeah, that that would uh, would uh, trigger the clause, the double indemnity clause that would go to Mrs. Dietrichson, who would then split the money with her new lover, Walter Neff. Yes. And 30 years later, they'd make throw mama from the train. (laughs) 40 years later, 40 years later. Yeah. Do you think they didn't show it because it was too... It would have been, I mean, I wonder. I think a couple of reasons. Do you think that it had anything to do with like, just because they were kind of skirting the line with some of the other like sexuality and these other like moral code issues that they didn't want to add on to it by showing, showing that as well and, and compounding anything or, or what do you think? Yeah, I think two reasons. I think that was one. And then the creative choice that went along with that was just uh, leaving it to your imagination is, is, is quite often goes a lot further than what, yeah, what more... you, what you see and, and, and looking at her. And then you're also holding on her face, right? On Phyllis's face. And that kind of, she's almost turned like, it seems like she's almost turned on by it. You know, she's excited. Like it's all coming to its Zenith of, of, like this is actually happening. I'm going to get this money and, yeah. and any humanity is gone if it ever even existed with her. Yeah. I mean, she's a pretty disturbing individual. Yeah. I mean, cause she's, she planned like w- Walter Neff is essentially an innocent coming into this situation. He's, he's a pawn. Yeah. Uh, she's had this planned out and was, I think uh, just waiting for the right opportunity and, and it came knocking with him. She's waiting for the uh, automobile insurance to lapse. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, all right. Women in film noir. How does that, how does that element age today? Do you think? I think it's people, modern audiences would struggle with how women are portrayed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Hands down. It's uh, that like, you know, it's almost written it like she caused his downfall, <laughs> like right. she, caused, she caused his murder, 
she's too irresistible and he fell for it and and like he basically can't say no and uh and it led to you know he wanted the money he wanted the girl and you didn't get either of them can you believe it yeah i mean he's you know he's the more he's the protagonist of our story but you know it's her it's her that did this to him well well whether they're the villain or the um you know, captive or whatever, their women are always a plot device in film noir to Mm -hmm. kind of push things along. It always centers around them. And whether it's rescuing a woman or uh, the woman is sort of behind everything. Hmm. So, yeah, it's um, but but that being said, like, what a great character also, you know, great performance and a, a well thought out and, you know, clearly a deep character that Phyllis Dietrichson is um, very complicated person that was created there. So you also have that of, you know, of a really different kind of role, which is what Barbara Stanwyck was, was worried about was doing something so different and challenging like this that, um, but, but it, it did pay off. So, yeah, well, I think it's, it's just something that'll bump audiences now. You know, it, it, it I think I, I see a lot of current day, um viewers struggling to accept that but but i do think that this is like this is movie takes a lot of time with with her and 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 like it's not just like he's just so attracted and he fell in love and now she's manipulating him like you can almost see a a love story you see the love story develop like he doesn't realize he's being manipulated but he i think like he is like sort of they're falling for each other for for the most part but it's not it's not like real love or you know whatever but like they're in this and then they're going to do this together so and nick you kind of get you get to know her a little bit more i don't know so it's not like she's like you know that classic thing of like uh dame walked in and i you know i knew she was trouble or whatever but i couldn't resist it's like no she i mean of course she comes to the door in a towel and then like you know she's she's dressed and ready to go and uh which was super risque back then. yeah oh yeah sure like like yowza <laughs> and uh but 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 it you know depending on your perspective it's like that even that even though they're like even flirting and then talking about the anklet and this and that it's almost like it's as in, it's about as innocent as it can get like you know and he pushes her off like when it's like no i'm not going to help you do anything but she's planted the seed in him now he's yeah. gonna now he's gonna help her like, yep he just needs to think about it so did, at any point did you find yourself rooting for them that you wanted them to get away with it yeah yeah, yeah totally the whole yeah. time yeah <laughs> like, i like, wanted i wanted them like oh i want a happy ending for both of them yeah <laughs> exactly like totally you know, within, I don't know, not, not immediately, but somewhere within the first quarter of the movie, I was definitely on board. Like, oh yeah, like they should totally, yeah. Like they need, they need to kill him for sure. Not that he was like great, you know, not, he's not portrayed. Mr. Dietrichson isn't portrayed as a great human being either, but didn't certainly didn't deserve to die. Um, But in the moment when you're watching this movie, you're, like, yeah, he, he should die. They need to get that money and they like happily ever after for them. It's almost like an inevitability. Like it's not even he should die because he deserves it. It's just no, the, they deserve to get the money and yeah. be together. Yeah. 
He's just the avenue through which they're going to get it. Yeah. And then you don't like, I found myself as clever as keys was. And as much as I liked Edward G Robinson, like, like, no, I, I don't want him to catch up with, you know, if he finds out, I want him to just have escaped, you know, it's like, as the planes taking off is when he puts it together. But, um, yeah, it's interesting, uh, how they, the direction they went and, and, uh, the original ending was, you know, they were going to do the, I think the original, original ending from the novel was that it's a double suicide. They end up mm-hmm. killing each other, like killing themselves. The Hayes commission felt like this was not enough. Like they really didn't, they didn't pay for their actions. So that's when Billy Wilder rewrites it to, uh, to the ending that we see. Uh, right. which is, you know, them, them essentially turning on each other because they've split, yeah. they have to stay away from each other till the heat dies down. And, and in that he sort of Walter ends up befriending uh, Mr. Dietrichson's daughter. And, and um, in that starts, starts to learn that Phyllis is also using the daughter's boyfriend as a, a way to probably get rid of Walter, right? So she's just going to keep using people. Right. He's also caught in a double cross. Like, yeah. I mean, he, he's discovering that he is a pawn in her, yeah. in her plan. And like, she was just using him the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, then the kind of climactic scene with the two of them when they confront each other and, and he ends up killing her. She shoots him. Right. But then he ends up killing her. And that I love that scene where where after she's shot, right after she's shot, she realize, realizes that she is in love with him after all. <laughs> like her, her dying breath. Her dying, her dying breath is that she really, she didn't realize it till she shot him. Of course, she'd rather be in love with him than dead. Yeah. <laughs> so. Right. But yeah, is she telling the truth even in death? Like, no. or is she still playing him? What's the point of playing him at that point? She's 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 growing cold with death. She's yeah. r- rambling incoherencies. Uh, <laughs> I could buy it. I mean, some you know, even if you're evil and uh, manipulative, you got you got to love somebody. Right? Maybe Walter was it. Yeah, maybe it's hard hard to know for sure if what what she, if she's still playing a game in those last moments. I usually I I thought she was telling the truth, but this. On this last viewing, I was like, I don't know. Maybe she just can't tell the truth. Right. Be right. That could be right. Um, and then the you know we we end up back where we started with Walter kind of making his way back to the to the office and telling his story into the machine, and he's leaving the message for Keys. I think with the intention, he's still trying to escape. Right. He's just. Is that what was going on there? Is he was his plan to like tell the story and then try to get out of there? Yeah, I think so. Like I he think had he had to get it off his conscience and he had, he had to tell Keys. Yeah, it was going to all come out one way or another. So at least he got to control the the narrative. I don't right. Know. So, but but that moment where you know you realize Keys is because you don't see Keys in the opening of the film, but in in the when we get there at the end you realize that he's the, the janitor had called him, had called keys to come in when he saw Neff stumbling in bloody 
and that keys is like overheard half of the story so um and then (laughs) you know neff just like he can't even make it to the elevator when he says he can't he's not even going to make it to the elevator it's it's a great great line by robinson uh and what do you think does 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 what we leave it with you know walter neff like on the ground with with keys do you think walter neff is dead there do you think he's just kind of passed out and gonna end up in you know wake up in the hospital what what do you think i think think he's no go ahead david uh i think he uh survives and goes to jail interesting i think opposite i think he died yeah i i thought this time i always thought he lived you know just assumed that he was just wounded enough to where he passed out lost enough blood whatever but this time I was like, no, I think he actually, is, I think he's dying. Hmm. Maybe he's, you know, they, they couldn't show that much blood back then, but yeah, yeah, you know, that was enough to insinuate that's a lot of blood, you know? Well, he yeah. had to le- leak blood for two hours. Like, you know, he, <laughs> yeah. he was, he was going to be fine. Like, yeah. yeah. He, he would have been just, okay. But. He just needed to get to a Mexican hospital. Right. Like, uh, and he couldn't do it. He, he, cause I think his really, it, reading a little more into it like it's his best friend like he he tells keys twice in the movie i love you too like and it's his last line like so you know yeah he didn't realize that his that being the good guy being being best friends with the good guy was the better relationship that he had you know well and the alternate ending that was filmed which uh i don't think there's footage of it but you can find stills of it is uh keys watching walter in the gas chamber oh wow it ends with him like getting strapped down and that that's 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 really really intense ending i don't like i'm glad i'm glad they didn't do that i like this open-ended picture and adventure yeah well and and that's kind of the genius of billy wilder is that he you know i think they had already shot that scene but when they shot uh this scene with with keys and neff it, it, the performances were so good. He yeah. was just like, yeah, well, Don't take why, that away. why, why, why not? Why not end it there? Why, why add one more thing that we don't need? Right. You know, this is truly this moment between the two of them is the end of this story. So um, great, great call there. Um, but so many, you know, technical things uh, living in Los Angeles. I always, I, I love these kinds of movies and trying to spot, like oh, I know exactly where that's. Oh, this is. is like a tour of Los Angeles. This is crazy. Yeah, the the Dietrichson house is up in Beechwood Canyon. That- that's the dude, man. When he rolls up to that house and he's like, "We're up in the hills, one of these thirty thousand dollar houses." I was like, thirty thousand dollars for that house? <laughs> yeah. Good. God, I mean, what man. would that go for now? Two, uh, millions, two million more. Millions. Yeah. yeah. Millions. North of uh, two million. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, even way more than that. It, yeah. It's bananas. But Beechwood Canyon is like oh. beautiful homes and, and a, a really, really nice area. Check it on Zillow. I yeah. want to know. But back then it seemed like it was, it was like, you know, they don't see, they're not rich, the Dietrichsons. So it's like your sort of average family. I don't know. $30,000, $30,000 house. Yeah, maybe. It's, yeah. About, it's about half a million in 1944. Like it would be the equivalent of half a million in 40. St- that still seems light. I mean, yeah. Oh, for I mean, that, that, but that house wouldn't go for half a million. You're like 30,000 no, no. is. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. Is the equivalent of a 500. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but like back, yeah, if they used today's rate, it'd be like this was a million dollar home. Yeah, yeah. And it easy. would be <laughs> worth north of like 10 million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the uh all risk insurance company, which was there, the uh Keys and Neff's office, that's the Bradbury building, which is in many, many, many movies. Uh Blade Runner is probably the first yep. one that comes to mind of that, you know, it, it's cool to see that, that connection. So talk about old school, classic noir and neo-noir connected all in the Bradbury. There you building. go. The, uh, the, the corner where she was going to, where the daughter was going to meet the boyfriend, uh, Vermont Franklin, that's where house of pies is. And the angle that you see him standing at the corner house of pies would be, would be in that right there's there. A, there's a building there, but you know, I don't know if that's the actual corner of back then, but, uh house of pies would be destined to be there to be in yeah. that shot <laughs> that'd be the spot that's where she was well, going yeah wait house so that pies. was that was what was that vermont and what franklin northwest yeah. corner okay yeah 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 so, the uh, way the, the way the where he's standing the way it's shot it's facing south and so but there's just a big there's just a big building there yeah which could have easily been there i have no idea and the drugstore was at hollywood and western so just a couple blocks from uh, mm. from that intersection. That's right. And I, that drugstore is gone, but um, yeah, I don't know when that was was uh, torn down, but that's where it was. the The train station was uh, was in, just in Burbank. That's that you know Burbank by, by downtown Burbank. Right. We say downtown Burbank, it makes it sound like it's a, a real downtown. Yeah. It's like it's like nope. one it's one a road. street. That, yeah. 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 yeah has shops on it so Mm -hmm. uh yeah but there's that train station's right there so that's uh is that the train station right under the bridge there yep oh no kidding yeah but the uh, clearly the bridge was not there at that point Mm, okay but it's interesting to see la you know back then especially i mean this is still when the valley was orange groves and yeah so much was not built out well, it's no wonder that everybody wanted to move to L.A. after watching all these Hollywood movies where they highlight all these locations and let them know that these beautiful houses only cost $30,000. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's all I'm saying. Well, and, that, and that's, you know, the film, like Sunset Boulevard has a bunch of these locations too, like Sunset and Crescent Heights, which was, you know, that intersection is now, or has been like in, you know, sort of an outdoor mall. There was a Lamley Theater there for, a great theater there for a really long time. But seeing it in Sunset Boulevard, it's like, nope. Then it was just like a building, you know, with right. uh, I think the one of the bars that he goes into, uh, and you also see, uh, what is it? It's another intersection, kind of right near where these intersections were, where his apartment is in the beginning of the movie, where will uh, where William Holden's apartment is, and it's like, yep, that building. It's like Ivar and Franklin and Ivar, I think, right mm. near where Amoeba used to be. Mm. Uh, anyway, this is for, for anyone who doesn't live in LA, they're probably bored to tears. Yeah, uh, it's just thrilling, but come out and you'll, we'll, uh, uh, Brent we'll will take a uh, tour. Yeah. Brent will give you a personalized tour. Yep. We're going to go the, on the double indemnity tour. <laughs> um, well, we'll end at house of pies. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, the, Again, the lighting, the cinematography was by John F. Seitz, who was probably the top cinematographer uh, in this time period. 
he was kind of the master of that film noir look. He he was from Germany and and really accentuated the German expressionism style, which was was modified for film noir. Um, but yeah, there's some of these some of the lighting effects, like when with, with Neff in the in the office in the beginning and the end, he's just surrounded by dark. You know, it's you can still see what room he's in, but it's really dark around him, just symbolizing that he's, he's really, he's uh, uh, not underwater, but you know what I mean when I say that, yeah. that he's just, he's surrounded by, by darkness, literally and figuratively. He's isolated. It's uh, the 1940s version of the portrait photo. Wait, what's por- that? The portrait filter. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have an iPhone. I get it though. Okay. <laughs> That's an iPhone joke for all you non-iPhone users. For for everyone listening 40 years in the future, the iPhone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The iPhone is. It was a device. <laughs> there, uh, this this is being broadcast way out in outer space, by the way. So absolutely. Could be uh, aliens listening. Um the this so the use of Venetian blinds. Yeah, we see that the the way the light comes in off that that the, the shadows from the blinds put this kind of prison uh, effect on on uh, Neff, and I think there's a scene with Phyllis too that they're just like they're the the imprisonment that they've done to themselves and how they've they've really backed themselves into a corner and and risked everything by doing this and uh, and then potentially literally for where. Neff maybe if he survives is going to end up. So, you know, lighting was used as a much heavier technique in these films than, than I, I would say than it is now. I mean, lighting is always one of the most important things and sets a tone, but that was like in film noir, they're using it much more. It has a much heavier influence and, it's almost almost totally obvious what they're doing, uh, whereas today is a little more a little more subtle. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Talk to Roger Deakins about that. He still uses lighting uh, very heavily and non subtle. Well, ways. yeah, but I mean, well, he. But he I, has, I, I know what you're saying. I'm just yeah, kidding. I mean, of course, every cinematographer has their own style. Uh, it's just film noir. It's like it's much more intense on the yeah. on, on the lighting than your uh well that stark contrast is kind of part i mean that's part of the style i yeah. mean that's part of the style that they talk about of noir right that's part of what sets it you know categorizes it as a yeah. film noir so absolutely yeah should we what what else do we want to talk about should we uh should we jump to the limited amount of box office glory that there that there is on this How do you even track you... box office for for <laughs> films in the forties? Is, is there really information? It, there's not a lot of info. It's it's he. I think they had a one million dollar budget that Billy Wilder brought it in under that. I think they ended up spending about nine hundred twenty-seven thousand, which is uh, seems like quite a bit for what they're doing in this movie. I mean, it is a it is a lot of locations, so a lot mm-hmm. of moving around. Um, but uh, but still, it's uh, well. And I wonder how much of that went to uh, the actors. Yeah, uh, Fred and Barbara. 
Probably. Yeah. That's yeah. probably the majority of the budgets. Well, and even Edward well, G. Robinson. Yeah, he was he, paid similarly. Oh, right. Yeah, he matched their salaries, which I'm not sure exactly what that was, but he worked uh, a lot less than they did. So he had a he had a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, he just had to show up at the offices, the yeah. office sets yeah. that they built. Yep. I'm sure they built yeah. on which location was, at yeah, Paramount that, Studios. Yeah, that's at Paramount. And yeah. That's a Paramount. Yeah. Uh, so it came out July 6th, 1944. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to say what the box office was. It, it was definitely a hit, uh, but hard to say. Um, yeah, hard to say what was, uh, where it really stood in things, but I guess you could tell because it got seven Oscar nominations, um, that it was, uh, successful. Unfortunately, it had zero wins there. Uh, it got seven nominations, zero wins. It was nominated for Best Picture, Director, Barbara Stanwyck for Actress, uh, Screenplay, Cinematography, Score, and Sound. But did not huh. did not win any. Couldn't get across the finish. July 6th, 44. Isn't that D-Day? Or that's June 6th. June 6th. June 6th. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, geez, <laughs> a lot of history happening, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, a month later, they needed a real uplifting film so that's they got some, double indemnity some, yeah. some to, to calm the, the people in the home uh, at home <laughs> yeah yikes um yeah interesting that uh but but the following year lost weekend would come out for billy wilder and he'd walk away with uh two oscars so and, and he won several more uh over time after that so um but you know for what is arguably his greatest film zero wins Oh. And it, it's too bad for Fred McMurray, too, because I think... Yeah, I was going to say, he didn't get nominated or anything. Yeah, he didn't get nominated. It's too and, bad. Yeah, that's... Uh, and it was, in hindsight, I would think this is his greatest performance. I'm, I haven't seen all of his work. You know, I, I looked at his his library of films prior to this, his filmography, and, and I really hadn't seen anything. I'd seen a few things afterwards, but... This is seems like creatively like the peak for him. I don't know. Shaggy Dog's pretty good. <laughs> Wasn't there the Shaggy Dog and was there the Shaggy DA? I think so. That was like, like the right? Shaggy, yeah. I think. I'm think out. And, I, and, I'm oh, out. was he in Flubber? The original Flubber was that Fred McMurray too? Well, that was the. Uh, wasn't that the absent-minded professor? Uh, oh yeah, absent-minded. But that's not. But that's not the Flubber movie, right? Isn't that the Nutty Professor with? Uh, no, there's a no the flub- nutty professor. Isn't the nutty professor the one with Jerry Lewis? Jerry Lewis. Isn't that the flubber movie though? Or, like, uh, no, like he I, creates flubber. Jerry Lewis creates flubber, right? Hold on. No, I no, I gotta. It's not gotta, chitty chitty bang bang. Oh, wait a minute. Shit. What's the original? I thought flubber the nutty movie? professor no, was a, the Eddie Murphy. Flubber. Oh, wait, the nutty professor is when he turns into the like, cool, he's cool, right? Yeah, he, he turns into like a really that's cool the dude. Eddie Murphy remake. Okay, 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 you're right. So, so all right, the absent minded professor was, was one film, son of flubber. Flubber is in the absent minded professor, son of flubber is oh. the sequel. Both have Fred McMurray in it, and flubber, uh. flubber, just flubber is the is the. Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Yeah. Yeah. So 
a lot know, of mad scientists doing shit in the back <laughs> back in the day in oh, disney so movies, many yeah a lot of disney like a lot of crazy intersections of technology and science and and people but that's where fred mcmurray's career kind of went back to that he even though this was a success he did um for the most part end his you know the the, the second half of his career was was back to doing more family style films and and television series so between these disney films plus the uh you know my three sons being such a huge show that went 12 years like 1960 to 72. yeah yeah and i think he stopped acting fred mcmurray in 19 i want to say 1978 and he passed away in i think 91 or 92. 91 yeah and but otherwise you're correct. Huh. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck, you know, remained a big star for, for a number of years. And I think she uh, acted into, I want to say the eighties. And there was a TV series called the Colby's, which, which came on as, you know, competition for Dallas and dynasty and, and Falcon crest and, and those shows. So uh, I think that was her last role. Um, Edward G. Robinson, uh, I forget when he died. It might have been the um I want to say it was the seventies, but let me let me see here. Seven yeah, seventy-three. Yeah. But acted all the way up until his death and got a uh oh, posthumous uh Oscar for for his career. So Soylent Green, his main last role was in Soylent Green. Soylent Green, yep. That is uh that is an interesting movie. The year he died, in fact, it's yeah. when it came out. Yeah. But uh Anyway, great huh. actors who had who all had great careers in different directions. But um, uh, so, what do you what do you think the film's legacy is now? Now that we've kind of looked back at it, David, you're making a shocking expression. No, I'm I'm reading stat uh, things. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not too smart to say how influential this is, but I think it's clear that that's this is uh, this is one of this is a highly influential film uh that affected all of hollywood that's all i can say about it i don't know <laughs> i think I you think, see yeah. you know the term often imitated never duplicated uh is good for this film that that you wouldn't i mean i think they did a tv remake of it in maybe the 70s that that didn't really you know impact but um you know, there's never there's never been a, a redo of this movie. There's never been a reboot or remake or or whatever. Um, maybe you could do a trilogy of prequels and sequels, right? That's the thing. Should we should we write that? Yeah, three yeah. three prequels. Do the three prequels to Double Indemnity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> every to every movie, we should just go in with that. Um, no, but I, I think it's hard to say that that this particular one, because they were coming so fast and furious, uh, so many good film noir throughout the, the late 40s and early 50s, that I think the genre as a whole influenced um, more than specific films, although, you know, the relation, the dynamic in this movie certainly was something that was uh, attempted many, many times over the years. And this is just... Um, you know, sort of at its best. But, it, you know, film noir would evolve over the years into, uh, you know, we're mentioning neo-noir and um, Blade Runner, Blood Simple, Seven, 
there's many there, there's a lot of films that you could categorize as neo-noir that are using noir elements mixed in with styles of the of the day whether it be the 80s 90s or even all the way through to today really um that just take some of the stylistic techniques of noir without it being a a, a straightforward film noir movie mm-hmm. um uh leading to what we're going to cover next week and our, our next episode of reconsideration we're gonna David, you should take control of the Wayback Machine. What, 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 what are you going to set it for? Yeah, please. Uh, I, oh, man, you put me on the spot here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 19. I don't know. We can let's go. 97. Oh, 97. Yeah. All right. You know, that's my that's the bookmarked uh, year on our machine here. So I'll just the one touch. That'll take us back. So we're, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna keep coming back to nineteen ninety seven because one by one we want to hit every movie from that year. Um, every movie because we have <laughs> we've done our, too our, many. Our Ernest lost... goes to band camp. Can't wait to hit that one. <laughs> our lost episode uh, involves discussing the year nineteen ninety seven. That maybe yeah. maybe one day we'll try to cobble the rest of that together. But oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> That's that a was, marathon, guys. That was an epic. Uh, we can't event. release that. <laughs> Not <laughs> as is, but yeah. Um, but there, you know, in talking about it, we we in kind of walking through the year, we we realized a lot of these movies that we did want to cover more in depth. So it being November, why not talk about 1997's L.A. Confidential? Oh, all right. Back to Los Angeles. Back That's to another Los one. Angeles. That's- that's another one I haven't seen. This is like back to back haven't seens. Kim Passengers, crazy. In this. You haven't seen it? I know. No, I was I was on team. Uh, what is Goodwill Hunting? Team oh. Goodwill Hunting oh, okay. at, the, at the time. Yeah, and <laughs> everybody at film school was like, "L.A. Confidential," bleep bleep blurb, and I was like, "No thanks." Get your pompous LA confidential out of here. I, I was I was on team Goodwill Hunting and Team Titanic, and I I missed a lot of uh, the good ones that came out around. The fact that, that so. you're on Team Titanic amazes me that we still talk, but that's all right. <laughs> I'm talking was about no- in '97. So there was nothing like it in '97. Yeah, nothing like it blew everyone's minds. Come on. The opening scene where the 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 submersive is is going through the titan, then it turns into the real ship, and CGI. Ooh, yeah. shit! That's good shit. <laughs> Dude, that movie. That movie's like four hours long. Like that movie. Oh, oh it's not. And you love every minute of it. <laughs> but love, we're not. Uh, we're we're, we're not probably one minute of it. <laughs> uh, Come on, Fabrizio, one of the best supporting characters of. That's it. Of any He's movie. The guy. Love Fabrizio. <laughs> Fabrizio's great. Bill Paxton. Come on. I love Paxton. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. But uh, uh, we're not covering Titanic next okay. on our next episode. It is LA Confidential. There is, you know, a bit of an elephant in the room that we'll have to address uh, in one way or another, but uh, with that film. So we will we'll come to that next time. But what I'm excited, I've, I've always been a big fan of that movie, but I haven't watched it. Um, and little trivia, that was the very first DVD I ever owned. Oh. So mark that down. Um, How was that the first down. DVD you ever owned? Came with the DVD player that I bought. 
Huh. What? Yeah. Really? Um, you you buy a player and no, at I, the time, yeah. I under, I understand how that worked. That's how Circuit I got City was well, they they gave you a choice. lethal weapon four and and friggin' sphere and yeah, U.S. Exactly. Marshal. Like I lethal, understand. Le- I understand. <laughs> you got it. But you didn't get a DVD player till ninety seven, like ninety eight. Ninety eight. Yeah. I was very anti DVD. Let's talk about this. Oh, you were. Yeah, you were yeah. very. Remember, I, I I was big. Like no, hold on to the laser disc, everybody. That's that's gonna stick around. Oh my! God. I didn't own a DVD player until two thousand two, uh, nice. and and it was a gift. You're okay. See, but there's the, there's a difference. I'm not David, a movie. Between... I'm not a movie. Exactly file. right. Yeah, no, I know. Oh, I absolutely should have adopted it. Uh, my first DVDs were Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, oh, that's a good one to be your first one. That one, uh, Wet Hot American Summer. Oh nice and my brother my brother got me these and uh i think he got me a third a third uh, up to five movies but and a third one that i can't quite recall but they were great choices well those two were sound pretty solid yeah Yeah. gonna have to meet this guy okay yeah he's He's got good taste (laughs) (laughs) cool uh yeah we'll we'll set that up yeah (laughs) So uh anyway, LA we'll, Confidential next yeah, time. Yeah, LA then... Confidential. We'll continue our journey through through Noir Vember. Um and uh it's gonna be great. So and we had a really fun time going back to 1944 and covering uh, a, a topic and an and era that's a little outside our wheelhouse with uh film noir and Billy Wilder, but it was so much fun and and I hadn't seen this in so long and I and I'm I'm glad I loved it as much now as I did then. So uh, excited about our next one. Um, Want to just do a quick shout out, like usual, to our friends EK Wimmer. Check out his podcast, podcast Laser Graves. Our friend uh, Jay Blake Fischera. Check out Scored to Death. And uh, Curtis Moore, thank you for the poster. You can check us out on social media. We're Reconciliation Podcast on Instagram and uh, Twitter, whatever Twitter is now. And uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, make sure to, to, uh, give us a, a five-star review. We always appreciate that. And it helps boost our, our, our views. So, uh, that's about it. Anything else from, from you guys, any, any other final thoughts on double indemnity? Uh, it strangely, I want to go back and watch car 54. Where are you? I think it's a I think it's a leap from Fred McMurray being on My Three Sons at Nick at Night and then Car 54. And then you have Fred Gwynn, who's not Fred McMurray, but they're kind of like tall guys with the big forehead. And uh, but this movie made me want to watch Car 54. Where are you? So that's how my brain works. <laughs> Do it. I, I feel like it's a Nick at Night night for David. The rest Looks of the like, night. Yeah. yeah, I think so. <laughs> Nice. I have no final thoughts. I can't. I can't follow that up. All <laughs> right. Well, Brent, we're gonna we're gonna prescribe a uh, Billy Wilder, um, you know, lineup for you to to just go through since maybe you haven't seen some of those in a while. For me? Yeah. Oh yeah. Dude, yeah. I'm. I want to. Yeah. I watch The Apartment pretty frequently. Yeah. To be honest, I yeah. love that movie. It's I wouldn't really mind good. covering that. So maybe maybe we'll hit that one up down the road. Yeah. Um, but, uh, okay, great. Well, thank you guys and stay tuned for our next episode of Reconsidimation. Take care. Bye now.
It was a hot afternoon, and I can still remember the smell of honeysuckle all along that street. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? Maybe you would have known, Keyes, the minute she mentioned accident insurance. But I didn't. 